year after Obama makes this comment about Russia being a regional power, Breedlove, who was the supreme commander of NATO at the time, said Russia is trying to rewrite the Cold War settlement using force. And then Biden, just last fall as he's running for president, says, I think the biggest threat to America right now in terms of breaking up our security and our alliances is Russia. So is Russia strong or weak? Howdy there, dear Slavic Connection listeners. This is your host, Matt. Today, I was joined by Dr. Catherine Stoner of Stanford University. We talked about her new book, Russia Resurrected, Its Power and Purpose in a New Global Order. The book is a fresh take that I think very effectively pushes back at some of the cliches or misconceptions that you might have heard about Russia and its trajectory in global affairs. Really interesting discussion. I think you'll enjoy it. This is not a book that roots for Putin at all. Um, It just points out that power in the international context now, it's really multidimensional, right? It's not just men, military, and money. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Stoner, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You know, we're seeing so much of Russia in the news lately. And so I think it's so important to constantly have new voices on Russia trying to help us understand what's going on. But I think the the best place to start is actually your book. Tell us a little bit about the book. Who is the audience and what do you feel like you're trying to say with this book? And how does it kind of fit into other or perhaps mainstream perceptions of Russia? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And Thanks especially for calling me a new voice, because I'm going to equate that with young, and I'm feeling my age (laughs) these days, so (laughs) I just wish I was in Texas to see you guys, but this is not my time, of course. All right, so this is, uh, this book actually is, uh, I've been told not to describe it as as pop, popular, but accessible, and it it is supposed to uh, have something for people who know a lot about Russia, and then also people who are interested, but may not know that much. And I'm glad you asked the question of where it fits in. I guess the way I got started with this whole thing is because I've always written on Russian domestic politics. So for me, this is kind of a new way to go as a scholar or um, analyst of Russia because it tries to blend domestic and Russia's foreign policy choices. And it really starts with this, what I I kept on hearing about five or six years ago when I started this project, the, the paradox of the perception of Russian power. So on the one hand... John McCain, now deceased senator, referred to it as a gas station masquerading as a country. That is, all it had was gas. Barack Obama in 2014 said Russia is just a regional power that's threatening some of its neighbors, not because it's strong, but because it's weak. I think that comment really offended Putin because he said, well, are we a regional power in Asia or in Europe? How do you square that? Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so, I mean, the bottom line, Matt, is that, of course, Obama was wrong. It was a terrible underestimation because what happened next, of course, was was you know, not only the annexation of Crimea, but a really quick and effective mobilization into Syria, part of the Russian military, which was radically reformed from 2008, a reform that, that really has just finished. And mobilizing into Syria changed facts on the ground there. It's changed the balance of power there. Then, of course, we have the 2016 U.S. election interference. We have interference in Brexit. We have financing on the part of Russia of populist parties um, like Marine Le Pen, encouraging you know, populists and would-be dictators in, in Hungary. 
buzzing warships, U.S. warships that continues today on the part of Russian bombers. And then big cyber intrusions. And the, the biggest, most recent cyber intrusion is one that is likely still ongoing, discovered in 2020, the FireEye intrusion software. So, you know, that's, I think that's why we get, you know, another sort of paradox in the observations on how strong Russia is by Phil Breedlove in 2015. So only a year after Obama makes this comment about Russia being a regional power, Breedlove, who was the supreme commander of NATO at the time, said Russia is trying to rewrite the Cold War settlement using force. And then Biden, just last fall as he's running for president, says, I think the biggest threat to America right now in terms of breaking up our security and our alliances is Russia. So is Russia strong or weak? If it's weak, just a regional power, uh, or a gas station masquerading as a country or a gas station with nukes, as it's also sometimes called, then why is it able to be so disruptive? And why by 2020 is Biden saying it, it's such a threat? And so the book really says, look, is Russia punching above its weight or is it now a heavyweight? And so to make the argument, I make some correctives about how we think about power in international relations. And usually people are thinking of things like GDP, the size of a population, how much a country spends on the military. And if you look at those measures, Russia doesn't look that powerful, right? Its GDP is 1.7 trillion US dollars. The US's is over 20 trillion. Its population is less than half of the US's. It's a small fraction of China's or, or uh, India's. And, and facing major declines. Um, that's one of the first pieces of evidence that people of that kind of, tra you know, I, traditional or potentially mainstream view right. of declining power point to is, well, how can your power be growing if your population is declining? Right. So in fact, actually, um, this is outdated, right? So this is part of the argument that I have is that, first of all, Russia is not as, as weak as we think it is. It's recovered a lot. And so I, the book title is Russia Resurrected. I had originally written it with a question mark and the press, <laughs> took, the press took the question mark away. And, and so one of the um, two, you know, arguments about power and Russian power is that, um, yeah, Russia's recovered uh, a lot um, since, of course, the collapse in 1991. And one of the things that I think people underestimate is resilience and how far it has come since the collapse in 1991 in just 30 years. So should we expect it to be at parity with the United States in all areas? Of course not, right? Look what happened to it after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The worst, you know, man-made depression, economic depression in modern times outside of Venezuela, I think, may now have passed it. It's maintained some of the prior capabilities of the Soviet Union, of course, in nuclear weapons. Uh, and it has um, some new tools of international power that are not that expensive, like cyber, disruptive, sharp power capabilities. And the system now has a lack of institutional checks that enable a powerful president to use what Russia has amassed quickly and without much accountability. And the tolerance for risk is high. So this makes Russia a very disruptive power in international relations. The book also thinks about power much more broadly than just those traditional means that everyone points to and says they're declining. In fact, the Russian economy was not declining prior to the COVID crisis, and everybody's de economy is declining now. Russia's no more than anyone else's. Russia didn't have spectacular growth in, in 2019, but it, you know, considering that it was under sanction by Europe and the United States, it had one and a half to two percent growth. It has low public debt, relatively speaking. It has good macro financial indicators. So again, people tend to have this stereotype in their head without looking at the data. 
So the book is very data heavy and it shows the trajectory of Russian growth. Yeah. So I, I think this is the problem is that people don't actually look at the facts that much. This is not a book that roots for Putin at all. Um, it just points out that power in the international context now, it's really multidimensional, right? It's not just men, military and money. You can do a lot with things that are not that expensive and that, you know, Russia has has recovered to a certain degree in things that are more expensive. That, that actually gets to a question that I wanted to ask you, which is, right, how, how much of this resurrection is directly attributable to the policies of Putin, as opposed to just, you know, immutable factors like the, the you know, the growth of economy and the, you know, the freeing that took place after the Soviet Union? Does, does Putin deserve credit for this? How much credit do you give him? So I think if he weren't president of Russia today, Russia would be... Uh, much farther along uh, the road to resurrection. So I've written previously with my colleague, Michael McFall here at Stanford, that Putin's autocracy holds Russia back. And, and that's still the case. That said, you know, I think that some of the policies actually at the end of the 1990s in, in, in terms of establishing fiscal restraint set the stage for the 2000s. And certainly, you know, at that point in 2003, a lot of Russian growth came on the back of, of higher global oil prices. And certainly Mr. Putin at that time didn't really control global oil prices. That's another area, though, where things have changed, right? So a lot of people say, oh, well, they're so oil dependent, oil revenue dependent. They are still. The Russian economy is still, of course, revenue dependent. And the book goes through that. It's become less so. But one of the things, too, is that Russia has now forged like sometimes precarious relationship, but a, a, a pretty productive one so far with Saudi Arabia in something now called OPEC Plus. And so it does actually now have some input to global oil output and, and therefore prices. These are things that you can't measure by the traditional means of power measures like, you know, the, the economy. Russia's policy weight or influence in carbon energy is really significant, and that can't be you know, overestimated. And for now, we're still a carbon-based economy. Now, maybe in 50 years from now, and that's another point that the book may, makes is time horizons, that will be very different. But you know, right now, that's where we are. You're in Texas. You guys know this. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I actually know a lot and, and care a lot about this issue about how Russia is trying to deal with the energy transition. And for a long time, they basically did, you know, the policy was do nothing, deny the energy transition. But literally, quite recently, due to the pandemic and this new prime minister, Mishustin, they've done a lot on this front, including this uh, hydrogen power plan and this idea that they're going to use hydrogen and nuclear, right, which are, you know, use current infrastructure and things that they currently have a lot of expertise in to continue to use those as geopolitical tools abroad. And you probably know, too, of course, that they sell nuclear um, power plants. Absolutely. It, yeah, they sell them to India. They sell them throughout Africa. To the yeah. EU, to Hungary, to... Right, yeah. right. So they're going to be a big and... You know, particularly important, that is weighty, influential actor. And that's something we also don't think about with traditional measures and means of power when people dismiss them. Returning to this previous question, though, about Putin, to me, it seems like then the logical conclusion of that is that if Putin were to leave the presidency, then Russia's power could grow even, even more. Do, do you believe that that's the case? And if And if so... Does that mean that maybe people in Russia are looking around and say, hold on, maybe we should get rid of this Putin guy 
if it could potentially make our country more powerful. Well, yes, but, right? So I think Alexei Navalny's video from a few weeks ago reminds us that Russia's economy is, is a, one of cronyism and Putin is stealing from the Russian people. And, and, you know, a lot of that video are things we knew before, but they're beautifully presented in the video. And if people haven't watched it, if you have two hours, take a look. Highly recommend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that's the argument for, and this is also, this is chapter eight, is that, you know, this patronal cronyistic politics where he and this small circle are, are pocketing a lot of revenue that could go to the Russian state is why I think, you know, on the one hand, yes, he's given some stability. On the other hand, it's become more autocratic domestically and he's had to suppress dissent more. But his goal is to maintain this cronyistic system, power of self-enrichment, right? So Russia could do better with a system of government that is, is not one that enables this theft, basically, from the Russian people. So theoretically, that could, you know, give them more means of power, right? If you invested more in society and in research and development in the economy, then, yeah, it would be more powerful. It depends on what replaced Putin. So is it a government that would do that? Would it be a government that would be more uh, responsive to its population? So I think it would be. I mean, one of the scenarios I run in the book is imagine imagine the post post-Cold War Russia as post-war Germany, right? And if it had built structures that way and had, you know, become a liberal democracy, basically, or, or some form of representative government. I'm trying to think of how we apply so much of what you're saying to what's going on right now with Russia, which, you know, obviously there's this this tragedy, really, with Alexei Navalny being thrown in jail. And of course, of course, the what appears to be an attempted poisoning by Russia's own security um, services upon him, an, ass an assassination attempt. So obviously, one of the goals of the book seems to be to get Western policymakers to kind of look with more clear eyes at Russia and kind of realize that we can't, you know, ignore them and we need to probably more aggressively stand up to things that Russia is doing. Is that correct? Do you, do you think that, that that's part of what this policy would be? Right. And I think it's also, you know, it's an issue of, uh, of time horizons. In the long run, things may get, things may be very different in Russia. Yeah. But frankly, we're not going to be around in the long run, right? In, in 50 years, I'm sure we'll be driving electric cars. And, and so it's policy weight in, in oil and natural gas is not going to be as important. Okay. But how long do we wait for that? Putin's time horizon is, is not. 50 years. It's maybe 16 years from now when he may step down or he's already starting to approach. Although I will say he he tries to, there's this story that when, whenever he meets with journalists, he always asks the journalist, what, what will historians write about me in a hundred years? And I, I think it's part of this idea that he wants to create this image of him being so sure. wise Peter and thinking Great. about the future, Peter the Great or something. Yeah. But on yeah. the other hand, no, I totally agree with you that <laughs> he's not thinking far enough in the future. Yeah, it's complex, right? But, you know, the time horizons aren't, aren't necessarily what we would think they are. And the main threat to this regime and to his power, just to link it back to your question about how does this, you know, what's going on with, with Navalny, the main threat is not, as he says, NATO, or Russian security doctrine says NATO. It's really society. It's, you know, the legitimacy of his regime, and autocrats have to make things look right. 
because um, you can't use force all the time. You can't shoot everyone, as Eric Honecker once uh, was told, <laughs> right? You know, so Alexei Navalny, you know, is kind of another puzzle. Like, why care about a guy who doesn't have, you know, a formal political party that, you know, if you look at public opinion polling from the one reliable place, he's got like four or five percent uh, approval rating compared to Putin's up over 60. Why care about this guy? Like, why try to poison him? Why botch the poison. Why do they keep using Novichok is another thing, right? It doesn't seem to work very well. But um, why care so much? And, and the answer is, you know, the regime domestically, and this is where the book hooks up to, to domestic politics and why Russia, what the purpose is of, of foreign policy in the last, and the use of power in the last five or six years in particular. Why, why do this? And it's, again, it's a question of domestic legitimacy, not being able to make the economy grow as fast as it had until 2008. There has to be another, you know, way to maintain that domestic legitimacy and make things quote unquote look right. And so Navalny is a big threat to that. Um, you know, just it, he doesn't want a Putin doesn't want a color revolution. And as we've seen on the streets, Navalny is very capable right. of producing a lot of young people in particular. And that's another big problem. For right. It's kind of funny the way that, you know, the Kremlin tries to say that, oh, Navalny, you know, yeah. isn't a threat. But based off of their ac actions, it couldn't be more clear that he yeah. he is indeed uh, a threat. And so, so we've seen this kind of crackdown on dissent really yeah. in the last year. I mean, starting with these constitutional changes and then you know, these demonstrative arrests of, of journalists and other people, new re repressive laws, increasing of fines for protesters. Do you, do you believe that all of this is being done out of necessity, out of, I mean, this is, these are steps that they have to take for preservation? You know, so so I wouldn't say it's just been in the past year. You know, it started really when Putin came back to the presidency in, in 2012 in the wake of these big Bolotnaya uh, protests where young people were put in jail for a very long time. And and then you're right, in the, in the past couple of years, there have been increasing fines for protesting, which makes it even more the remark. And, and not just fines, but also, you know, sanctions like being kicked out of your school program or university, um, losing your job. So it makes it even more remarkable, actually, that so many people came out on the streets, you know, the weekend of January 23rd and then 30th, 31st, you know, to demand Navalny be released and, and also calling Putin a thief. So I do think that the regime sees this, I mean, just judging from the reaction as as kind of an existential threat, mm -hmm. right? That's what will bring Putin down, or, or at least he clearly fears that it will. And I think the particularly problematic thing, too, for the regime, and this is why we're getting, you know, the screws tightened more and more on society, is that it's young people out on the street. Now, it's not all young people. There are some, you know, at, at least two thirds are not. But um, young people in Russia have not been you know, this is really new since 2017. It's a new generation that doesn't uh, identify with this now aging autocrat, doesn't use the internet. Um, these are people who get their, their news almost exclusively from the internet. And so they see, or, or social media platforms, they see a very different world than the one that the state is presenting on television. And that's, you know, their needs, their demands, their interests are different. And more and more of them want to leave Russia, indicating that they will leave Russia. And that's a tremendous longer term problem that the regime has to deal with. And it's a real indicator of weakness within 
Russian domestic politics um, for Putin. So what's the choice? Sorry, long-winded way of answering your question. Uh, what's the choice? Well, one choice would have been to open government and allow for increased accountability, even if not full liberal democracy. That was a choice, right? And we saw a choice like that made in 2009 to about 2011, and even earlier with earlier with Yeltsin and uh, but the choice, the other choice is what seems to be happening, which is crack down further, put more journalists in jail, arrest more people, make an example of Navalny, even risking making a martyr of Navalny or get rid of Navalny. And so really there was a choice, of course, but Putin's instincts are clearly uh, not ones of enhancing representation and accountability in Russian government. Because what would happen? A lot would be exposed. As we've kind of alluded to, it really is only a matter of time. There was the Levada polling about almost half of 18 yeah. to 24-year-olds say they don't approve. And my goodness, that's, just I mean, that's, a, that's a very yeah. scary number. Yeah, yeah, and the even scarier one is the is the number of, of 18 to 24-year-olds who are indicating, and this is in the book, actually, that who are indicating that they intend to permanently emigrate from Russia. Yeah. So, I mean, that suggests some policy for the Biden administration. Yeah. And Make it easier. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. So, perfect. <laughs> so, let, let, let's look at the, what the Biden administration can do. You know, in, in your opinion as an academic, what would be kind of the ideal uh, policy response or solution or kind of roadmap that you think the U.S. should take towards Russia? Yeah. Well, so I should say right from the start, Matt, that no one should pretend they have all the solutions because it's a, you know, it's a difficult issue. But you know, clearly there's Russia and then there's the regime under Putin, right? And clearly the regime has become emboldened after four years of Trump, emboldened because there was no pushback or no hard pushback. I mean, there was a continuation of some targeted sanctions, but, you know, very difficult to get the message that, hey, stop doing that when the president of the United States is saying, well, he just told me he didn't interfere on my behalf in the 2016 elections. And basically admiring him. And so now we're obviously going to get a very different reaction to Russia. So, you know, first is a, is a, was the New START renewal and there was very little time to do that. So that was just done quickly. And that's great because of the verification regime there. One of the reasons I wrote this book, actually, is um, I got sort of tired of hearing some folks who had served in government in the last 10 years or, th or so saying the Russians are constantly trying to be treated as though they are equals and they're not. I just think that's not the right question. In some areas, they are, actually. And even if they're not, I mean, they're, disrupt they have, they're showing us that they have the capability to be tremendously disruptive to American interests. So it's not whether they are, you know, as strong as us uh, is the question. It's what do they do with what they have and why are they doing it? And so I think hard pushback, first of all, diplomatically, is what we're already hearing from the Biden administration, but cooperating in some areas. And the world is different than it was four or five years ago now. Russia has hastily moved in uh, to the power vacuum that uh, was created, for example, in the Middle East. Right. They go in just as we come out, basically. And they're selling arms in Iraq, helping with oil infrastructure. Now control over uh, pipeline infrastructure in Syria. 
in parts of Iraq too, building roads, having deals now with traditional enemies throughout the Middle East, Iraq and Iran. So we need Russia in, in terms of trying to reinstate some sort of JCPOA-like agreement. And they're now clutch. They were important before, but now they're very important. Russia has you know, good relations with literally enemies of one another in the Middle East. That's new. That's good. For Russia, it's, it's not necessarily great for us, right? Um, so that gives them leverage. And again, leverage not over selling oil, per se, refining for sure, but also moving it. And again, we're still in, into Europe. So, you know, Russia is, is the strongest power in Europe, hands down, no question, in, in almost every way. So I think being at least respectful and acknowledging the influence they have and where they can be helpful Rather than getting into this, they're not exactly our peer power. Yeah, as opposed to denying it. It doesn't help. I mean, how does that advance our interests, right? Exactly. It is yeah. what it is. The other, the other area, of course, is Venezuela. Russia has taken over, basically, the Venezuelan uh, National Oil Company owns it and is refining and, and marketing its oil. So the book goes through, you know, where in the world is Russia basically now and, and what they're doing. And I think it's just trying to point out that often people are not aware of this, right? And so they tend to be, this is why we're surprised when all of a sudden we get some kind of either cyber attack or that Russia's economy, in, in fact, actually is not doing as badly as as you'd think, right? This is some somewhat old news. In the long run, yeah, they got to diversify a lot more. But if we think they don't know that, um, you know, then we're, again, really underestimating them. Whether they can do it with this regime is the problem. And, and so I think that for the Russian people, they're gradually growing impatient with the theft that people now believe is, you know, a huge problem, of course, at the elite level. And so if anything brings the regime down and changes the nature of the regime, it'll be the Russian people. It's not going to be it's not going to be the U.S. or the European Union. Right. But, you know, the U.S. and the European Union are currently, you know, discussing potential steps uh, to take against Russia, including things like new sanctions. I know that Navalny, his team and organization released a list of people that they would want to see sanctioned. And at the top of that list are you know, people usually referred to as oligarchs, people like the owner of the Chelsea Football Club and others who would they would like to see sanctions. I mean, do, do you think that kind of going after this this Russian, the money of Russian uh, oligarchs and officials in the West is the is the correct move? Do we need to uh, widen and expand sanctions on uh, on, on on Russian individuals? So, you know, sanctions are, are a very imprecise tool. But they're what we have, right? And the targeted sanctions have certainly made life very uncomfortable for a number of very wealthy Russian business people who are, you know, are more or less close to close to Putin. So in that sense, you know, I think that's poking and clearly they don't like it. And Putin doesn't like it, right? Remember, you know, sending in this uh, female lawyer to talk to the to the Trump team when he was running for president. Veselnitskaya, yeah, exactly. yes, yes. Who mysteriously pops up all over anyway. Right. She's ostensibly talking about adoptions, but in fact, she's wants yeah. they want the sanctions off. So they're, they're inconvenient. And clearly that puts pressure on him as, as sort of the, the ultimate patron. This is also in the book, actually. So so, you know, there's an argument for increasing sanctions and, and targeted sanctions and perhaps more exactly uh, at people very close to Putin or, you know, freezing more assets. Right. But it's it's imprecise and it, it it hasn't shut Russia down to the extent that we might have expected if that was the goal. 
It's not clear that's the goal, right? And But, you know, the idea is that long run, this would become so inconvenient for so many powerful, wealthy people that they would eventually see Putin as a liability. Like, do we need Crimea this badly? I mean, come on. But how long is the long run is the problem, right? So it, it's the tool we have. It's a very imprecise tool. One thing, though, I, that, you know, getting back to what, what else can we do? Well, you know, you and I both noted how unhappy young people are. Uh, in Russia, or at least saying that they are in um, successive surveys, some indicating that they'd like to you know, leave Russia permanently. All right, well, let's make it easier for them to come here. Um, those uh, folks are the future of Russia. And if they're not going to stay and help revive their country's economy because they're frustrated by you know, the inequalities and unfairness built into the system, not that we don't have that here, of course, but it's kind of of a different kind, um, there, um, theirs is really due to corruption, uh, then um, let's make it easier for them to, you know, come here, um, either to be educated and then, you know, create startups. Let's think of the Russian emigres who have come to Silicon Valley, where I am right now, uh, the Googles of the world, right? And, uh, and let them do that here uh, rather than, than in, in Russia. I, I agree with you. And it starts with small steps. I mean, I think the first place to start is things like ed- educational exchanges. I know right. that the former ambassador to Russia, uh, J- John yeah. Huntsman, yeah. when he gave his first interview as ambassador, one of the things he said is that he would, his, one of his big priorities was to see what they can do to expand all kinds of educational and academic exchange. But the, the, the Russians didn't seem eager to take them up uh, on that. Right, right. Uh, but, you know, whether you created as formal exchange programs, which, you know, the, the government presumably, the Russian government will presumably jump on right away because, you know, unfortunately, they're not stupid, which we sometimes think they are, right? Like, oh, they must not see that their economy isn't very diversified. And of course they know that, right? So just the same thing here. They, they know what we're up to if we do a formal exchange <laughs> program. So what will they do? They'll shut it down. Um, but instead, what you can do is you can, you know, provide funding um, and just make it easier uh, to for Russian students to come to the United States to study because, if Chinese are any indication, they tend to want to stay. Um, and that's not bad for us. That's good for us. You have highly educated, very capable uh, young people who want to build businesses. Okay, that's good for the U.S. economy, and it's bad for the Russian economy. It's that kind of thing that will bring this you know, regime down. Or they'll go back to their country with new ideas. Um, and, uh, you know, again, that will also help to weaken this particular regime. The last thing I want to ask you about, given that, you know, as you alluded to at the beginning, you're also a, a student and scholar of Russia's internal politics and parties and, and protests and, and so on. I wanted to get your thoughts on your expectations for the, the net, kind of the near to midterm future. There are obviously these Duma elections coming up in September, and there's the, these uh, reports about their, how they're trying to get new parties into the parliament. One of them is actually called New People, which is a very direct allusion to that frustration amongst younger people about the lack of new faces and really any kind of livelihood in the political system. And on the other hand, we have, as it's often called in Russia, the non-systemic or real opposition, which kind of Navalny leads, who looks like they're going to plan more protests this summer. And it seems like they're taking 
tactics that have been used in, in Belarus and trying to really kind of localize the protest movement. So I, I'd really just welcome any thoughts that you have about what we might see or what we, what we should expect over the next half year kind of running into this summer. Yeah, so it's interesting to see. And again, I think this is the influence of younger people who see these, uh, you know, snappy videos on YouTube and and the kind of clever approaches that, you know, are refreshing. And that's somewhat new. Yeah, coming in part from other examples in Belarus. But also, I think those are, you know, Russians are Russian people are extremely, you know, creative so what will happen? Well, that's the multi, multi-million dollar question. It's intriguing that uh, Mr. Putin and his regime is, uh, they're so concerned about the, the Duma elections, which of course his party will, will certainly win. Can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes around win. Again, you know, autocrats for purposes of legitimacy, things need to kind of look right. And so if, if there's too much success from other parties, then, then, you know, that's risky. So I think, you know, we'll see more repression. This whether or not, you know, a kind of ragtag group under Navalny's sort of organization will be able to withstand that is a question. Um, and, you know, there's, there is strength in numbers. So keeping those numbers and the logic of collective action going is, is going to be the big challenge for the opposition. For the state or the Russian government, it's really how much force are you willing to use? punching people or imprisoning them or, you know, one thing that's really a puzzle, I don't know if this puzzles you too, is why do we have so much video footage of young people in substandard prison conditions? Like, why are they bringing, why are they allowed to bring their phones into the paddy wagons and, uh, you know, film that sort of thing? Because that, that, it goes viral and people get more and more indignant would be the, would be the risk. So I, I think that we'll just have to see, especially in pandemic conditions, whether there's a tipping point, the Russian population. And a quote from Putin that I have in the book actually is that Russia has overfulfilled its plan, uh, the plan in terms of revolutions, right? <laughs> 1917, you know, arguably 1991. And, and so he, they don't want revolutionary development. He wants evolutionary development. So, you know, given, long-winded way of saying that given his regime's propensity to use force, increasing propensity to use force. I think that, you know, he's not going to be suddenly toppled in a popular revolution. It's the country's too big and, you know, the security apparatus is obviously all still with, with him and under control. But there may be, you know, pressure and we've seen policies change. For example, the you know, pension policy was, was altered slightly in the face of public reaction. So it's possible that, you know, in some many months that Navalny is quietly allowed to, to leave jail. What he does after that is another question. And whether his organization is bigger than himself is a big question. If they can produce videos that continue to expose corruption to mobilize people. I'm, I'm glad that you ended that uh, on an optimistic note, at least with the with the possibility of of Navalny and, and his organization being able to maybe you know at least live on. Because I think that a lot of people are concerned that it could all it could just be you know stamped out. But uh, I, I tend to agree to you that the, the the cat is kind of out of the bag at this point, and it's really just a it's a matter of that time frame question that that we've talked about. Dr. Stoner, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm definitely going to check out that book because uh, again, nine ninety nine Kindle version on Amazon. Yeah, no, buy it absolutely. <laughs> yeah, because I think that kind of these fresh 
takes are, are very valuable and, and needed right now. So thank you so much for coming on. Great. Well, thank you guys so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies.